You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1995, and Houston, we done goofed. Paul. That's not how the line goes. I'm pretty sure it does. That's not historically accurate. It is. Actually, Ron Howard got it wrong. The movie, Apollo 13. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the final chapter in our space series. Amy, this has been quite a ride. I mean, we have really run the gamut in this series. Uh, so many great films. Is there a favorite that you've had so far? Ooh. You know, the one that I keep thinking about is Contact. I feel like every film we do, I start putting it in the lens of Contact. Like Mm. Contact just set a bar for me in what space films are about on a visceral level, which is exploration and curiosity and the unknown and coming face to face with something bigger than we can comprehend here on Earth with these microphones in our faces and these earbuds in our ears. Think about, I don't know, cats and how hungry we are. That space represents something gigantic. And in all of the films we've watched, I think Contact gets that the best. You know, look, I hear what you're saying, but to me, space is all about bringing some cool-ass space guns up and blowing the shit out of some aliens. That's what I want to see. Just bloody aliens on a different planet. Let's colonize the shit out of them. Uh, You don't mean that. Or if you did, then I would say, then let's put the trip to the moon in because that one is the best about it. I agree with with you. Contact has been the one film that I think has it all, like truly has it all. And it's really interesting that we are ending on this film because we let the listeners really decide on all the films that we were covering. And It was surprising the whole way through, and I think it was great that we brought in Aliens, because I think Alien and Aliens have a really interesting conversation. But this is another film where people were really 
split down the middle. And I think uh, Apollo 13 just beat out, just kind of crested over all the right stuff. And I can't wait to kind of break this down with you because it is one of those movies that I think has a very high um, respect in our like recent cinema memory. Like this movie feels like this is an important film. Would you agree with that? Maybe. Okay. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's been recently lapped by the documentary Apollo 11 that came out. Oh my God. That is one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen. If you've not seen Apollo 11, I mean, it will blow your, it, it was, it's riveting. And I want to actually talk about that in contrast to this, but yeah, wow. We absolutely should. I mean, that documentary is staggering. It is a staggering work about the work behind the Apollo, Apollo missions in general. But with that said, like, is there anything that you think connects these films? Like when filmmakers go to space, what do you think we're using space for? Right. Because we've seen space used as a place to have some gnarly battles, you know, shooting our xenomorphs and blah, blah, blah. And I thought the alien films coming in would be really strong contenders to be my pick out of this entire series. And they weren't at all. Like it it was interesting to me that in comparing both of them back to back, we're like, we don't need it. We don't need these these xenomorph explosions. I love Ripley, but Ripley is not going to go to space. Maybe she's happy not to go to space. I will say the thread that all of them share, in my opinion, is emotional trauma mixed in with insurmountable odds, right? I think going to space, um, that physical taxation on your body is often in these films paired with a deep emotional wound that either needs to be healed or reconciled with. And I found that to be really interesting. Every one of these movies deals with death longing and despair and depression on some level, um, you know, with the exception of a trip to the moon. Um, you know, I, I, I really was kind of surprised at that, that that was like the underlying uh, thread. You're right. It seems like space is the setting where I would say humans confront themselves. Like we go out of earth to be isolated, mm-hmm. you know, adrift, in an inhospitable world to be like, what have I done wrong on earth? I mean, even if you're Tim Allen, what did I do wrong on this earth that I can do better here away from the old habits, my old life? How can I improve it? In a way, a trip to the moon is the only one that doesn't do that because it's talking about how people don't change and they leave their normal planet and they act like rude, mean colonizers and they don't grow. Well, I mean, by the way, that's the other part of all of these films as well. Let's go to a planet. Let's take it over. Let's put our impose our will. I mean, and in contact, they're trying to impose their will. In Galaxy Quest, it's like, well, I'll I'll fold into the, you know, I'm going to take over. I know how the things are done, you know. But there is this idea that like humans know better. I think what we can really just draw a line to is what we just experienced as a culture. I mean, worldwide, like this like pandemic where we were forced to stay in our houses, we were isolated from everybody else. And a lot of people looked at that time as a chance to reevaluate and reflect on their lives and, and have to look at things they probably wouldn't have looked at if they didn't have a chance to slow down. So I, I think there's something really interesting and, and kind of cathartic and also uh, smart about these films because space, like you are leaving the planet to kind of look at yourself again in a way. And I feel like we've come as close as we would ever come to that as a society in the last year and a half. Oh, I think you're exactly right. 
And I think this is why I am so drawn to space films. And that of all the genres that we have, you know, Westerns and war movies, space films are the ones that I'm always the most intrigued to watch. You know, and I, I think that they can get a little bit repetitive in stuff like Ad Astra, where they really lean even harder into trying to make a Solaris that's all about getting closer to your family. Like, I, I, I don't want the theme of it shoved in my face as much as I think a lot of modern space movies right. do when they are trying to be, you know, Tar- Tarkovsky-esque. But I think it's just such a relatable emotion here on Earth to be watching people ex- live through what's essentially like being in a mirrored therapist office mm. with the risk of death at any minute. I mean, even in something like Fast 9, which you see Fast 9, right? Like, yes. Even in Fast 9, they go to space and there's a moment for uh, Ludacris and Tyrese to say, you know, quote, who would have thought two guys from the ghetto would make it this far to have their own look back on everything they've done for nine films? Well, roughly, I mean, more or less. 20 years, 20 years of history there. I mean, who would have thought? Uh, who would have thought? But even in the Fast 9 franchise, space is where you go to look back on who you are. <laughs> well, with that, let's look back on how we even opened up and explored the space race to empower us to tell these stories with a little film we like to call Apollo 13. Let's five, four, three, two, one, unspool it. The year is 1995. A domestic terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City kills 168 and injures 680 people. Michael Jordan returns to the NBA. The U.S. space shuttle Atlantis docked on the Mir space station, and astronaut Norm Thagard completed a record-breaking four months on Mir. Amazon and eBay open for business. The FDA approves the first chickenpox vaccines, and the minimum wage is raised to $4.25 an hour. The top movies are Toy Story, Braveheart, Mr. Holland's Opus, and today's film, Apollo 13. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Who directed it? Tell me the scoop. Here is the scoop. Apollo 13. It is directed by Ron Howard, the child actor turned steady studio hitmaker who directed Cocoon, Splash, Far and Away, Willow, Backdraft, Frost Nixon, A Beautiful Mind, The Da Vinci Code, just to name a fraction of Ron Howard's impressive oeuvre. Um, It is written by William Broyles Jr. It is based on a book written by Jim Lowell, who's one of the astronauts who was on the Apollo 13 mission, which went horribly wrong when as they were headed toward the moon, the rocket went on the fritz. They had to ration their oxygen. They had to ration their electricity on their way to land on the moon, leading to the infamous and inaccurate line, Houston, we have a problem. NASA does not like to improvise, but here they go in this film, inventing all sorts of things and ideas and math problems to get their three men home safely, which of course they did because Lowell lived to write a book about it and then lived to see himself played by Tom Hanks. Um, The other two astronauts here, uh, Fred Hayes and Jack Swigart, are played by Bill Paxton and Kevin Bacon. You've got Gary Sinise on the ground as the pilot who should have been up there, except he was in Measles Protocol, and also Ed Harris as the NASA boss, who demanded solutions and for people to cling on to their hope. Take a listen. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall fear? Uh, well, I tell you, I remember this one time. I'm, uh, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. Uh, it was a Shangri-La. We were in the Sea of Japan, and my, my radar had jammed, and my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency, and so it was was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean. So uh, I flip on my map light, and then suddenly, zap, everything 
shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone, and I can't even tell now what my altitude is. Uh, I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about uh, about ditching in the ocean. And I, I look down there, and then in in the darkness, there's this uh, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae, right? It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was it was it was just leading me home. Now, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that. So, uh, you, uh, you never know what, what events are going to transpire to get you home. Apollo 13 was released on June 30th, 1995. And honestly, the only notable thing about the number one song on the Billboard charts that weekend is that everybody was just rocking out to the soundtrack to a totally different movie. This one starring Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Zorro and the Brian Adams banger Have You Ever Really, Really Loved a Woman? To really love a woman To understand her You gotta know her deep inside Hear every thought See every dream And give her wings when she wants to fly and when you find yourself lying helpless in her arms, you know you really love Brian Adams, I miss Brian Adams. Oh, classic. That's like a, a prom song if there ever was one. Um, Amy, have you said that you've never seen Apollo 13? I can't remember when we first started doing this. I had not actually seen Apollo 13, so this is my first Apollo 13 watch. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on it, because I saw this in the theater, um, and I feel like this is a movie, we talked about this a little bit last week, very much in the Shawshank world of, it's often played on TV. I think it's got some of, arguably, our favorite actors, you know, people that you go to, the people that you like, people that, you know, it's directed by one of the most likable great, solid director. Just every part of this is packaged in a way where you feel like it's a home run. And I think in many ways it is viewed as like, this is a great home run movie. Your thoughts. Well, what surprised me about Apollo 13 was watching a movie that has all, I feel like the pieces and the timing, you know, it was like basically out the 4th of July of being a rah-rah, look at what we did. We got our men home safely popcorn flick. And I was surprised to realize that this is a film about disappointment over achievement and a film about reconciling with what happens when you don't get what you want. That this film had a really emotional pull about these aren't just the men who did great things. These are the men who had to look at what it was like to feel powerless for when you're floating in space. And what is it like to live towards a goal that you don't get to achieve? And I feel like that's not a plot I've seen in many movies that have this kind of like big cast, big construction, big, you know, I don't know if it's weird to call the Apollo 13, like an IP vision, but like this, this construction around it and wind up feeling, you know, sort of mournful. Like you're showing a different way of what a hero is. And yeah, that the, a victory, hero... the victory is that they are alive and that they are yeah. home, not that they did something great. I mean, they did do something great, which was, work together in in under 
insane circumstances to remedy it. So in many ways, it's a hero story, but it's a side story of the hero story. Like if the hero story was, we're going to go to the moon, the hero story here is, we got them back home. So you still, you can have your cake and eat it too. Like at the end of the movie, there's a very big, there's so many triumphant moments because yes, they didn't hit their goal. They didn't hit the goals they got, but they got their lives back. They got this, they were successful. They were the smartest men. And I say men only because there are no women to be found in here, no hidden figures uh, in the room uh, to kind of uh, to to make this work, figure it out. If that's like throwing all the pieces of the cockpit, uh, you know, on the table and going, let's figure out how to build the filter, like that kind of know-how, that MacGyvering is really impressive. Exactly. It is impressive. But when you are looking at kind of the baseline dream of Tom Hanks, you know, I want to go to the moon. All I want in life is to go to the moon. I've lived my entire life to go to the moon, to stand on the moon. Like I've watched my friends go to the moon. I've watched my friends, you know, become superstars. Like I know Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong is a superstar. That just happened last year. Like it is my turn to have a movie based on a person who really wants something and did everything right to get there and can't do it and then watch a movie about a person grapple with failure? Like, when do we watch people grapple with failure? Like, yes, they, they got home, but he never achieved his goal. And I thought that was so striking to watch in a film. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast. That's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I have a hot take on this movie. I've had a lot of hot takes in their space films. I think this movie is beautifully constructed, really well directed, well acted, all all the good things. But honestly, in watching it, it felt to me like a Lifetime movie. Like it is... A very much like a docudrama. I didn't feel like the. I didn't feel like just do this as a documentary. What are you bringing to the table more than a documentary in this movie? And I would prefer to watch a documentary. Like I, we talked about Apollo Eleven at the beginning of this episode. This idea that like we're watching it really happen. I feel like everyone is equipped here. And if you didn't have the story with Kathleen Quinlan, who is phenomenal in this film, as Lovell's wife. Uh, and that that pull, there's really no movie here. I mean, it's just this is what happened. Like, there's no, 
I don't know why it didn't, like, I didn't feel any drama. I didn't feel any, like, it's hard because we know the outcome. We know what, what tragedies we've had in our space program. So, you know, I think it's always this tricky thing. Now, when I watched Apollo 11, I was on the edge of my seat and I don't know what that difference was. I don't know if, you know, and I'm looking at this movie and going, oh my God, it's amazing. They shot in these weightless moments. They did 54 minutes of weightless scenes. It looks flawless, but it just felt like uh, a dramatization rather than a movie. Is that a harsh thing to say? Well, first, they didn't do 54 minutes of weightless oh. scenes. They flew 612 rides on yes. Vomit Comet to get the weightless scenes. That's almost four hours of weightlessness. Right. So 52 in the film of pure weightless scenes. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of like how much time uh, yes. Tom Hanks and Rod Howard spent like floating in space, it is insane. It's 612. Can you even imagine that much weightlessness? And when they get to the top... They only have 25 seconds to say like the line or float through the room or yeah. do this one thing, only one take, and then you can't do it again. I actually want to see the documentary just on, on that. Like show me the documentary Phenomenal. of these guys making this film where you go up and you have 25 seconds to say one line. And if you screwed up, I don't even know how much money it costs to do that. Like, Well, I mean, if you ever look at this, because I remember when this movie came out, this is all the EPK footage was all of this. Like you just saw them in space a million times. And like this vomit comet just is like a parabola. It just goes up and then like the skyrockets down. Like it's a very intense thing, you know? Uh, and in that way, like, I think this is where Steven Spielberg comes in. He says to uh, Ron Howard, like, don't put them on wires. Don't make them like human marionettes for six months. Like you should do the vomit comet. And, there are moments in this movie where you're, oh, I was watching it and I was like, how did they do this? And then I realized like, oh, that they really are weightless. And it's really, really like technically impressive. Well, like, yeah. I almost feel like the accuracy was outweighed the emotional pull. And sometimes I feel like that in, in, in these movies that are like telling me, trying to drama. I, I like the out, I like being on the outside of a larger story than I do like being in, you know, the full recreation of the story, I guess. Well, I think what you're talking about is that Ron Howard wanted to make this as much of a documentary reenactment as he could. Mm -hmm. You know, that he built the capsule to look so much like the capsule. Uh, he built Mission Control to look so much like Mission Control that the scientists he had there who had been at actual mission control would get confused when they left the building. Like they sort of blink and be like, oh, right, I'm on this set. I'm not actually in mission control where I worked for decades. That when you try to recreate something so closely, he didn't give himself a lot of space to make up anything. You know, right. I mean, this is a mission and where like can't. all of the dialogue that, you know, they said – to Mission Control, you can actually go and like read all the transcripts. I like went through and started like reading the transcripts to see what they actually said on the ship. Really what I was doing was I was trying to see if they said, um, if they're talking about like dead dead rhinoceros asses. Like, oh, you know where that actually... came from? Do you know where that came from? Well, it definitely didn't come from the transcript because they do okay. not say dead rhinoceros that asses in the transcript. from Gary Busey, oh, who was visiting set, who was visiting set and he offered that up as... A line. He also uses that line in Point Break. Wow. I mean, yeah. it's so good you say it twice. But honestly, part of why I was searching the transcript for the word dead is I was like, did they ever talk about 
could they die while they're up there? You know, did they ever say like, NASA, could we die? Like, what is our chance of death? Like, did they ever have that conversation with NASA? And it's just not in the film. And they didn't. Like, I searched everything. I searched death, dead, dying, uh, doomed, goodbye, wife, all sorts of things, trying to come up with a moment where they might have had a conversation with NASA about what do they do if it doesn't work out? And it doesn't seem like they did. It seems like this is a story where they kept their cool. And so Ron Howard makes a movie about the type of man who keeps their cool. And it becomes a study in cool and a study in coping less than yes. a thriller. And, right? and I will say, yes. And I will say that the acting is very good. Like, I think that they, like they're doing a lot and you're seeing a lot, um, but you, like you said, this accuracy police. And I think Tom Hanks was dubbed as the accuracy police. Like he wanted to do this before Lovell's book was even announced. You know, he wanted, he had hired writers to, you know, investigate the premise and could they fashion a script from these events? And, you know, when he found out that Ron Howard had the rights, he like, he was like, okay, let, I want to work on this with you. And, and he was trying to make sure every detail was right. And, you know, so much so that he like grabbed like Ron Howard and Brian Grazer out of bed, who Brian Grazer producer, so they could watch an astronaut crew in action and unfortunately that action was just like them walking across a parking lot but it was like he was and I think you know we see this in Tom Hanks's work uh, you know from Band of Brothers well, well actually Band of Brothers is interesting because I think that is more dramatic um, but I think that Tom Hanks loves you know, World War II. I, I think that he loves to get in the nitty gritty of things and tell these stories and this is a beautiful story and it is something you're right. Like maybe we wouldn't have be celebrating these people. We only celebrate our victories. But I wonder if there's something a little bit lost in that translation or we've progressed as an audience where we've seen a mix of real events and, and, and drama. And I, I feel like this is it's kind of checking every box, but the only box it's not really checking is a drama. And I think that's why they drive hard into the Kathleen Quinlan stuff and the and Lovell's mom. John Sales was credited as a writer, but I think in the DVD commentary, Ron Howard says the only scenes that John Sayles wrote were the scenes with Lovell's mother. Okay, well, you sound just as cynical as the people uh, alive when Apollo 13 took off, who are like, well, if it doesn't, like, if it goes well, we don't care. You know, like a newspaper at the time actually had the headline, Too Perfect, the Public is Getting Bored. And I think it's insane that people were so jaded by this point. I mean, Apollo 13, this mission happens nine months after Apollo 11. Like humans have only been walking on the moon for three missions at this point. Like five mm. people have been on the moon. We've been doing this for eight, nine months. And is it just human nature that people on Earth are like, we don't care. We're done. We've done it. Like that, that this achievement is taking place and nobody is interested until there's a disaster, until there's drama. I think it's interesting how quickly we were jaded by it because you... You talk about Apollo 11 and how it sounds like the entire world just stopped. It's interesting. There's a documentary coming out, um, or that just came out, called Summer of Soul. It's about a concert that took place in the summer of oh, 1969, yeah. like an all-summer-long concert. It's directed by Questlove. It's amazing. Like It's got pr performances from Gladys Knight and the Pips, Stevie Wonder. Uh, it's awesome. But the moon landing happens while this concert is going on, and the people that get interviewed at the time are like, we don't care about this. This is a waste of money. The money should be better spent, you know, like serving communities of color who are, you know, starving in this country. We need right. more help than this. And that this movie kind of works in concert with that, taking us back to a time where I was told, yes, the entire world frozen its tracks, you know, like stopped 
looked up at the sky, united, cared about it as one. That was what I liked the best about the Apollo 11 documentary is I felt this sense of an America that was united. But to go back here to the real story of it and realize 50% of Americans were like, I think the moon is kind of stupid. Why are we doing this? This is a waste of money. It's an interesting correction that we were jaded so quickly by this, by this idea. Well, yeah, especially when you go back and you see like how inspirational John F. Kennedy was and, and this idea of like, you know, I think we talked about this a lot in the last, you know, four years, uh, you know, before the the new election. Like, are we giving up on science? Are we giving up in the sense of wonder? And, and you know, and, you know, you and I who are young enough to remember the Challenger disaster was, you know, that was a moment where I feel like we were united, at least as kids. Like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We have a school teacher going up in space and, and to see that tragedy. And then then NASA kind of lives in shadows for a while. Like, you know, it's like, we can't, we don't want to publicize this. We don't want to get people on board because we don't want people to see this. And, you know, and, and this idea of like this majesty of space is, is really, it's been a real push pull relationship. It seems like in our culture. And then you have people like Elon Musk who are, who is doing very interesting things and, you know, buying, you know, uh, something down at Cape Canaveral and launching ships. And, you know, there's, there's a wonder, but I think there's always a push pull here, you know, this of, is it worth it? Why are we doing it? And sometimes the answer is we're just doing it because we should just achieve great things. You know, I mean, we should explore the world, you know, or, or our whole surroundings. But that's hard to do when you also are underfunding, you know, public education and, and, and communities that don't have the proper services. So I get all it's a real mixed bag. Okay, well, then let's talk about that more. I want to get into the numbers because it comes up in this movie. You know, when it starts, Tom Hanks is not supposed to be flying to the moon on Apollo 13. He's on deck for Apollo 14, and he gets spooked because nine months after we walked on the moon, people are already talking about canceling the program, that we did it, it's fine, we don't need to do it anymore. And he's worried if he waits too long, he won't get to go at all. I mean, he's having conversations like this with a member of Congress. Of Apollo 14 sometime late next year. If there is an Apollo 14. Now, Jim, people in my state have been asking why we're continuing to fund this program now that we've beaten the Russians to the moon. Imagine if, if Christopher Columbus had come back from the New World and no one returned in his footsteps. Attention all personnel. By the way, that member of Congress is played by a guy that we keep talking about lately, which is Corman, the director. He mm. has a cameo here um, as the tight-fisted politician, which is funny because he was a really tight-fisted producer. Well, I, you know, I do, I do think that they create this sense of longing and wonder in the film. I know we we're talking about like, but you, you definitely understand where Lovell is coming in. I think Tom Hanks, this is like his, the beauty of his performances across the board is like, there's so much going on in his eyes. And, and that opening scene is a great introduction just to the world that we're in you near know, they're opening up in this house party. Everyone's there. Everyone's you know, gathered around their TV to watch Neil Armstrong on the moon, you know, and, oh, and, and Kevin Bacon's being a real horny dude with his beer, right? Yes, yes, yes. Now, the important thing when you're penetrating the lunar module is your attitude and your relative speed. Now, let's say this is me here in the command module, and this is you. Right. In the left. Mm -hmm. This thing sticks out here in front. That's called a probe. Is that true? Absolutely. And, and, and Tracy, I'll tell you, when you feel that thing slide in, everything's clicking. It's like no other feeling in the world. And it comes back, though, to set, uh, setting up, setting it up, setting it up for a, a little scene later. What do you but, think he's setting up for a little scene later? What kind of scene are you talking about? Well, when they dock the ship. Is that what you're talking about? 
Oh boy! I think oh, I think it's going to be another. Well, I mean, uh, of, for this well, movie. of course. I mean that you know. By the by the way, this movie does have the most depressing ending. It's like, and he died before he even got to Congress. Uh, you know, it's like, oh god. Uh, but there is there is some. They do a great job of, I think, setting that bureaucratic nature of of NASA because it, it is one of these things. And and as I've seen the right stuff, and I've seen other films like this that takes place about, you know, in the world of NASA, like you're, it's the only place where you could be the most qualified and then not go. And I think they really show that through Gary Sinise. And I love Gary Sinise's, you know, role in this, you know, and I love what he did in this, you know, his real life character, uh, you know, being in the module and and working there. So I, I think that they really do create not the panic, but the want, the desire, the longing and the respect for this thing. Like you really, you really feel for these guys. Yeah, but you also feel, I think, for this country and this country's disinterest in pursuing science. I mean, like, how crazy is it that in our lifetime, nobody has ever walked on the moon again? The last moon landing was 1972. We have lived our entire lives without any other human being going back to the moon. I guess without us building a base. I thought we would have all of this stuff by the time I was this age. You know, I really thought we'd have moon bases and probably be on Mars by now. And you know, to put it into perspective, like, yeah, okay, sure. Like we give NASA $21.5 billion right now. That's the NASA budget. You know, that's NASA budget in 2019. billion. It's a lot. Like, sure, that's money we should be using on other stuff. However, our military budget is $680 billion. $680 billion. So the idea that we feel like we have to starve NASA to pay for education, when really the fight is, why are we spending $680 billion on the military every year? I mean, that's what needs to be reallocated so we can do some cool stuff and like keep the moon progression going. I don't want the moon to be just the playground of Elon Musk. Like, well, I don't want Elon I guess, Musk to be in control of space travel or I mean, Jeff Bezos or any of them. I mean, like, I, guess I don't want my, a rich guy in charge. I, well, I mean, I think that that's what we're getting to privatized space travel but and, and, and exploration. Uh, but I will say that. But I don't want it. Like, I don't. I, want I, don't, it. Like, I mean, I look, want, I, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I agree. But I, I think it's like it's just who's financing it. But I but I, I guess my point is to what your question is, is like, who cares? We haven't had anybody walk on the moon. Why? Why do we need it? Like, why do we like to me? Why do we need to repeat that? I'm not saying, why do we need to do space travel? Like, let's continue. And I think we have done some amazing stuff. Like, like I said, the 1985 is, you know, we have the Mir space station. We are trying to push forward. Like, there's nothing there to explore. It's like, I long for more big ideas and, and, and different ways to explore things and figure out different ways to travel and, and into space. Like, I'm not saying let's cut off space. I'm just saying, like, we don't need to duplicate that just for duplication's sake. Well, I think we need to do something big, invisible, that inspires the country to care more about NASA in space. Like, I think in not doing anything that seems tangible, Mm -hmm. and and that gets kind of like good media coverage, we are not really considering space to be like a cool young thing where our best and brightest should be going, you know, to go to space to work for the government. I mean, like back when... The Apollo 13 mission was was going on. You know, the average age of mission control was like 26. It was like young guys in there, you know, fresh blood, being brilliant, coming up with this stuff. And now the average age in like NASA mission control is 60 years old. Like it's aging up because young blood isn't going in there. 
I want us to do something inspirational that we can picture. And yeah, like I think the moon, sure. You don't find, you don't find any inspiration in what Elon Musk is doing? I mean, take no, because Elon I Musk. don't trust him at all. Like Elon Musk is going to take like himself and his friends up to space and leave us in a burned flaming earth. I don't and know. Honestly, I, I, I like what's about, going on like, with SpaceX, but okay. But I mean, I this is all like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I don't trust Elon Musk. I like the scientists of SpaceX, but I don't think he should be in charge of it. And I also am worried that we talk so much about the future where we colonize Mars instead of the fact that it would probably be better to work on like fixing the soil on Earth instead of trying to make the soil on Mars palatable for growing potatoes. Mm-hmm. Now it's not like you. I'm being a hypocrite because I feel like I also want to be spending our money more on like making this Earth livable. But I worry about rich people building pods and then leaving us all behind. And I feel like without any sort of government reaction or without us leading the charge on that, I'm worried. I don't. I don't want Elon Musk to go up there. I don't want like an Amazon shipping department. But on I mean, Mars. but do you, but do you want kind of like the character that uh, that Xander Berkeley, my uh, a friend of mine, Xander Berkeley, who's a great actor, and I love when he pops up and stuff, uh, who plays like Henry Hurt in this movie, like who's a kind of a composite character of NASA public relations. Like I think you see a side of NASA here that's not very likable. Like, you know, I think he's manipulating a situation like, you know, put these camera crews on your lawn. Let me, you know, he's he is playing up something, too. It's like I don't think that the government is the answer. I mean, I think we've seen that a couple of times, even in contact, like government isn't the answer either. It's not like like it's not like that NASA works in this beautiful, magical land. It's like they are, you know, they're in this world where unfortunately they are still a government. I mean, they have the the highs and lows of any government organization. You know, I, I think I don't think I don't think that one is so cleanly and, you know, purer than the other. It's not like, oh, NASA has real scientists who really give a shit and Elon Musk doesn't. I mean, this is a, a much bigger conversation, but I feel like what you see in this movie is that even back then, NASA is suspect. They're a little sus in, in the way that they well, handle this. I mean, I OK, you're right. You're talking about the scene. Right here, where he's um, telling Tom Hanks' wife that he wants her to like, go out and talk to the press, yeah. and she gets really mad. I thought they didn't care about this mission. They didn't even run Jim's show. Well, it's more dramatic now. Suddenly people are... Oh, if landing on the moon wasn't dramatic enough for them, why should not landing on it be? Look, I, um, I realize how hard this is, Marilyn, but the whole world is caught up in it. It's the biggest no, story Henry. Since... Those people... Don't put one piece of equipment on my lawn. If they have a problem with that, they can take it up with my husband. He'll be home on Friday. That's fair. I kind of also get it, though, from the press relations standpoint. Like, you're worried that they're going to cut NASA funding, so you need to keep NASA on the news. Mm -hmm. And it is grim, but it is the sort of thing that can keep NASA going longer. I just want to get to have a vote on what we're doing. And if Elon Musk is in charge... We don't, right. you know, we don't have a say in what's going to happen on the mar- on on the moon. But do you get and a I say? And I do think that part of what NASA struggles against is the fact that it takes so long to, uh, you know, the gap between like announcing what you want to do and then actually making it happen takes so long that you usually switch presidents in the middle of it, and then mm-hmm. nothing gets happened. Like, of course, because the president wants to come and like undo what the last person did, or say like, no, this is what's happening. Like George W. Bush, he said that he wanted to go back to the moon. Do you remember this? He was like, we're going back to the moon, right? 
So he announces that we're doing it. But then when Obama gets elected, he's like, we're not going to the moon. I want to do something different, you know, which I get. He's like, instead of the moon, let's land on an asteroid. Let's figure out asteroids. And so then he re-gears the project to us trying to get on an asteroid. But then when Trump gets in office, Trump's like, no, I want to go back to the moon. So then they switch the project back to the moon and they're wasting like billions of dollars. And in the meantime, we're not going anywhere, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. Like, I think that there's a, like, it's bureaucratic and it will always be bureaucratic. And I think because it's under, you know, it's under, I, I, I actually know two people who work for NASA and were working for NASA under Trump and, and, you know, now there's space force and all this sort of stuff. There's, there's a lot of politics. I mean, it, it's, it's an organization that's bureaucratic and falls victim to politics. And so, yes, I think you're right. Like there is a, there's a version of this where we're like, let's just have scientists explore and do and and create and come up with these amazing ideas. And and this is a moment truly where we're seeing that this movie to bring it back to this movie. This is a movie where you're getting to see scientists have to use their smarts. And obviously every mission is using their smarts. But this is really there's no option here, right? The option is we have to save them. So everything was at their disposal. Everyone worked their asses off. And I think that there is something really, and that's again, what is so amazing about this, the triumphant about this film is like, all right, so the smartest people in the world or in our country put their heads to this problem and they solve it. And they, and they, and it's not one person saves the day. It's like everyone does, you know, Everyone does their piece of the pie and then they are able to, you know, there's no hero ball in this. You know, it's yeah, like, it's like, like Tom Hanks talks specifically about how this is a team. The astronaut is only the most visible member of a very large team. And all of us right down to the, the guy sweeping the floor are honored to be a part of it. What did the man say? Give me a lever long enough and I'll move the world. Well, that's exactly what we're doing here. This is divine inspiration, folks. It's the best part of each one of us, the belief that anything is possible. Things like a computer that can fit into a single room and, and hold millions of pieces of information. I love that. And I think that, that this is where the movie succeeds. And this is where I wrestle with the movie because I love watching Ed Harris run the show. And I love watching Gary Sinise work his ass off. And I love watching our crew on the ship. And I, I feel like there is there is no moment of like, I got it. Just trust me. Let me do it. Let me do my gut. Like everything is down to science fact and not science fiction, you know? Um, yeah. And they're not ex- running, outrunning any explosions in space. There's no like step aside. It's me, Vin Diesel. I can steer us home. Yeah. And I wonder if what I'm feeling from this is, and I, and maybe let's talk about this and you can maybe pull something that I don't think of right now. I think it's hard to make a docudrama really connect did you have that moment when you saw their ship that you were like oh my god they made it like or did you know like whereas Apollo 11 because it was all wheel it was all the voices it was all the characters like I, I was like oh my god like look at this is unbelievable like it was just unbelievable it was unbelievable to see and in their own words and see them. And here we're seeing like clips of them on the news and clips of them talking. And I know it's all right and true, but it just felt like, it felt like you're watching like an unsolved mysteries where it's like, okay, well, that's what they said. And this is what they did. You know, it just, it feels a little too much like there's not enough freedom to make a movie instead of just tell a cool story. I mean, I think that's fair. Like I respect that they didn't add dumb stuff. Like I of think course. if they had I don't added want dumb them stuff, to. Yeah. I would have been really upset at this. Mm-hmm. 
But hidden figures I, I, yeah, is a I, great yeah. way of like doing that side of a story, right? Like, I mean, in a way, like like hidden figures is like we're going to give you the emotional component of a true story that you've never seen. And I don't know how, again, I don't know all the dramatization of that, yeah. but it like at least is like we're gi- you're giving me something else to grab onto where this movie is just like just the facts, ma'am. Yeah. I mean, well, these guys aren't very outwardly emotional. You know, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, it's kind of like a war movie, right? Like here's your sort of tough guys. And it's Ron Howard making a movie honoring his parents' generation. You know, he's mm-hmm. a kid when all of this is happening. This, I mean, when, when people are going to the moon, Ron Howard was still doing Sanka commercials. Well, first I'd like to tell about new Sanka coffee. What? New Sanka coffee that's made from a whole new blend of the world's finest coffees. Uh, Andy. Shh, shh. Go ahead. Keep working, Hope. Well, Sanka's still 97% caffeine-free, so folks can drink as much as they want anytime they want. Good. Now you can go. I'm sorry. You know, I'm like obsessed with Ron Howard as a little kid selling coffee. Love it. I just, yeah. I mean, I love amazing. It. I love it. But, you know, so it, I think in the late 90s, we had this whole movement of our directors getting lots of money to make films that would make their dads happy, that they could mm-hmm. take their dads to go see them with. I mean, honestly, uh, now we're going to go down a tiny bit of a rabbit hole. But this is the sort of stuff I was thinking about. While I was watching Apollo 13, probably because, sure, I was a little bit bored. So my brain was going on all these tangents. I mean, I'm really curious now the relationship between Saving Private Ryan coming out in 1999 and the reaction to then two years later when uh, when the Trade Center gets attacked and like a young generation of kids who probably saw Saving Private Ryan's with their dads being like, well, what I'm supposed to do now is sign up to fight in this war, being like, this is my Pearl Harbor. Like how much did the 90s World War II films encourage a bunch of kids to sign up to fight in in the unending war on terror because we were kind of sold this thing of like when your moment comes go and be a hero do this stuff because it's all it felt like movies were doing in the 90s was like talking about the greatest generation and people thinking this was their chance to do it and it, it just feels like all these generations of like people trying to figure out what heroism is what it's like to you know connect trying to make movies that are about I I guess I just want to call them male weepies, like movies that are stories where that allow men to get in touch with their emotions in a way that we find okay, because it's about a heroic act that's probably true. You know, like when it's true, I feel like it makes it even more okay to have Ed Harris wipe away a tiny little tear. And that all of these movies are kind of telling us a way of dealing with manhood and what manhood and heroism can look like. And in that context, I kind of like Apollo 13 because it's about heroism when it doesn't work out and finding out how to be a hero from salvaging stuff and fixing it out. And I think their heroism that you point out is really cool, but still, you know, this is a movie about, about disappointment. I think at its core, even more than them getting home, it's a movie about what do you do when the dream you wanted doesn't work out? Because well, I mean, I mean this is how he describes is... it at the end, the idea that this was a successful failure and the actual narration at the end then goes to say how nobody else got what they wanted in life either. They died before they made it to Congress. Right. They never went back up to the moon. It is deliberately framing the story as as sad. And so that makes it interesting to me. That makes it more interesting well, to me than I... a lot. I agree with what you're saying, 100%. This is actually something that I've been fascinated by. And I produced a pilot that Anthony King wrote. Anthony King, amazing writer who's worked on some of your favorite shows. And it was exactly about this kind of a thing. And I'm going to tell you the movie that I would have preferred. Like Anthony King made a pilot that was like, 
Mitt Romney loses. Now what? You know, what What do they do? Al Gore, like, you know, after he runs for president, now what? And it's like, that to me is really interesting. It's like this idea of, you know, like we talked about this in Solaris and that's kind of where Solaris starts too. Like, I would almost like this movie to be like the first 20 minutes are this mission and then it's like well I'm never going to go back again like what you know how do we live with that because we don't really see that part of it like we hear that in the voiceover at the end and at the end what we're really seeing is the victory the victory of they're alive I mean they they're not risky like like I think when we watched contact Jodie Foster was like I will risk my life to see if this is real Mm -hmm. she didn't have anything to live for Jim does and 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 you know I'm just going to focus on him because I feel like he's the main character like and so it, like the moment at the end is like oh my god he you know when he, even when he says like I didn't go back up there you, there's a part of me that's like I didn't get like he was bummed about that I got like he was like you know what I don't want to ever risk my life again for this I my family and and my my family is more important than that so like I felt like he won you know in a way like and I hear what you're saying and I, I I'm into that like what is next after you've devoted your whole life to something. It's like the, you know, a high school basketball. It's like we talked about in Love and Basketball. You know, gets into the NBA, gets injured, and it's like, well, now what's next? You know, can there be a next? No, it's true. I mean, I think he can be glad he's alive, okay with the fact that he's not going up, and still feeling like he missed out. Right. And, but yeah, I want to say that too, because I don't think we have enough movies about, about, reconciling with disappointment. I mean, to me, this movie gets, it talks about disappointment really in the silences because his character, Tom Hanks's character, isn't a guy who's going to be like, I'm disappointed and I'm acting out. And I'm sorry, he's not like Bill Paxton in Aliens. You know, he's Bill Paxton here who loses his temper like once, which was that one, that is a part that was made up. He doesn't ever even lose his temper. You know, these guys were just so calm. I mean, I have an uncle who is a top gun pilot, you know, so he went through Similar training. And he has, um, you know, a lot of the same temperament. Like, I, he does, I've never seen this man upset ever in my life. You know, mm. of course, I guess the real story of what they do is not that interesting. I think they all went and worked for, like, tech companies and stuff. Like, you know, war suits and went to the office every day. But the movie does give you these pauses. Like, I think in the silence of the movie, that's where the disappointment lives. You know, I'm thinking about... The scenes say when um, there's like two silences almost back to back. I won't play them both because it's a lot of quiet on a podcast, not exactly mm-hmm. like radio friendly. But there's the first one when Tom Hanks is telling Ed Harris that there's a that you know he's seeing stuff come out of the vents, and they hold a silence for fifteen seconds as everybody in Mission Control has a minute to do the math and realize that means they're not going to land on the moon, and they're just quiet and they're scared perhaps, and thinking about what they're going to do. And then they just say like, okay, we, we hear the venting issue. And then the whole place just explodes into noise as they make sense of what they can do now. Right. And then a few beats later, you have the same one where they tell Tom Hanks to turn off, you know, the electricity. And that's when Tom Hanks realizes that this means he is not going to the moon. And so I'll let that one play. Cause I think this is to me, what makes the movie better than a docudrama is that it gives space for that reflection and mm-hmm. for it to watch Tom Hanks's face as he keeps it in but registers this appointment. It's beautiful. Right. So here's that pause. Shutting down the fuel cells. Did I hear you right? Yeah, they heard me right. 
Tell them we think that's the only way they can stop the leak. Yeah, Jim, uh... We think that closing the react valves may stop the leak. Did he copy that? Do you copy, Jim? Yes, Houston, we copy. We just lost the moon. I'm not saying that I don't hear your point, though. Like, I totally hear your point that I was never scared they weren't going to get home. Right. So the movie had to become about something else for me to make it work. Right. Yeah. And it had to become about like going down mental tangents. Like, why does Tom Hanks like playing captains? Tom Hanks plays a lot of captains where stuff doesn't go wrong. He played Sully. He played Captain Philip. He plays a captain movie called like News of the World, where he's trying to, you know, keep the country together. He played Captain movie I didn't bother seeing called Greyhound, which I guess is about another World War II. And I was like, I love you, Tom Hanks. I've hit my limit with this kind of movie. I won't be watching Greyhound. Perhaps it's good. Change my mind. I'm game for it. But I like that Tom Hanks is obsessed with playing this kind of man, a man who's in charge and it doesn't work out. I like that he wants to tell these stories. I do too. And I, and I think that like what I love about Tom Hanks and I think where Band of Brothers really succeeds is, you know. Is he a captain in that? I never saw it. Uh, he just is behind creative force behind oh, the director, okay. you know, kind of a, a creative you know entity. I think what works about that is we're allowed to get into like the, the gray areas, right? Like, yes, this is true. Yes, this is what happened. These are the stories. It's like that mo- that book, Generation Kill. I remember reading that. I didn't see the HBO series, but the book was great because you're just seeing these. You're seeing these stories through different people's eyes, and they may not be the most important people, but when you're the most important person, uh. I don't know. Like, I, I, like, yes, I want this movie to be made. I want this story to be out there because I think it, it, it um, dramatizes an amazing event in our history. I just wonder if, will it ever be more than that? Like, I found it boring when I saw it in 1995 and I found oh, it boring. Did? Oh, yeah. I found it boring. I, and I was like, well, maybe I'm too young for this. I wanted it to be more exciting. And I, I'm also very aware that I could be in the minority on this. Um, but it wasn't like up my alley at that point. This time I watched it too and I felt the same way. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm liking this, but, it, you know, whatever. Well, do you think Ron Howard just makes boring, respectful movies? Because I mean, the, to think about the movies that he made, I mean, to even just like go back and list the ones that I said at the beginning of the show, I mean... Well, I love Cocoon and I love Splash, but he does specialize in making, I think, really satisfying middlebrow studio films, right? That are good. Yeah. Like, I have no problem with almost anything he's ever made. Okay, some of the later movies, like his most recent Da Vinci Code was real dumb, but that felt like he was trying to be a younger director. Like, I felt like he was trying to make a younger person style film. And I was like, what are you doing, Ron Howard? This doesn't really fit. I, but I like living in a world where the studios make films that Ron Howard makes, because I don't think that we have a modern day Ron Howard anymore. Like who is Mm -hmm. today's Ron Howard who is allowed to make, you know, perfectly servable movies. I was trying Tate Taylor, the guy who made the movie where. Yes. Yeah. I know you're talking about the Olivia shits in a pie. What am I talking about? No. Are you talking about the guy who made the help? Yeah. The help that that's the pie movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and and are his films as good as the films of Ron Howard? Eh, no. 
right? Well, like, I, yeah. I wish we had more of these. So I guess I'm coming at it from a position of wanting to stand up for this film, even though it's absolutely not going to space, if we can say that now. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, like, look, I think that Ron Howard and Steven Spielberg knew how to make these movies that capture an audience's imagination and, and, and do it so much. And I think the difference between the two of them is that I, I feel like um, I would argue that people remember Spielberg movies more and they probably have a little bit more staying power, right? Because I think they're, they are a little bit more um, of an imagination that is groundbreaking. Like this has got the best special effects. The CGI is so real that Jim Lovell's like, how did you get these real sequences? Like the, the, you know, everything about it, the mastery here is on display, but it's of the moment where I do feel like Steven Spielberg's films um, have all the same ideas uh, or, you know, technical mastery, great actors, uh, really fun stories, but they can kind of have a, a longevity to them. Whereas I think Ron Howard seems like, I think if you talk to most people, you wouldn't realize that Ron Howard made hit after hit after hit after hit. Yeah. Even the way we talked about Rob Reiner, like the way that he made these movies, like he was capturing a moment. I don't know if like, if most people care about Harry Met Sally anymore, but in that moment it was huge. And I think that there's, there's something about that kind of uh, a director too. It's almost like you're right. You're riding a moment and you're, and you're, and you're capturing a point of view. I mean, and that's not to say, this is not to shit on anything but it's sort of like you know ron howard i think has made these you know he's he's had tremendous success with these new things like these genius uh documentaries that he's doing on a and e where it's like you know albert einstein and you know it's like all these uh these you know these like little their dramatizations you like to watch new stuff right well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, it sounds weird to me coming out of my mouth that I mourn, mourn for Ron Howard. I think I even told you like last year during pandemic, one of my pandemic activities, which I failed on, was I was going to try to understand Ron Howard. I wanted to apply the Howard Hoxie and Cahiers de Cinema, you know, how Cahiers de Cinema, all those like French critics who were young, like Truffaut. Looked at Howard Hawks, they looked at Hitchcock, and they were like, you guys never took these directors seriously. We're going to argue why they're masterpieces. And they did it. They managed to pull up Howard Hawks and pull up Hitchcock and make them get appreciated as artists when before they had just been known as hit makers, when mm. I think they were seen a lot more like how we see Ron Howard. And I would love to be able to crack the code of Ron Howard and build an argument for why he is the Howard Hawks of the 90s. I haven't been able to do it yet. 
Well, I mean, you know, I think that Ron Howard's beginning of his career is a lot more interesting than the end of his career. I think that Ron Howard is a guy who is making Night Shift and Splash, Cocoon and Gung Ho, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, you know, Far and Away, The Paper, right? Apollo 13 Ransom. Ed that TV. is a ridiculous string of hits. That I mean, is insane. Everyone is giant, you know, and then like, and then once he does Grinch, right, which is not very good, um, but that's not, I don't think that that's anything on him. I, I, I think, but he kind of creates a very faithful adaptation of this thing and you get Jim Carrey in there. You think it's too faithful? You think it's too much of a I, I drama do. I Grinch? do. I, 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 I do because you I will tell you that, that the Grinch would like maybe not find his heart this time. Well, I'm going to tell you, look, the, the TV version and the Illumination version are way better versions of it. Well, I've seen the version with John Larroquette as the Grinch on stage. Ooh, all right, interesting. But then look at this. So after the Grinch, it's Beautiful Mind, Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code, right? But then it's Frost Nixon, Da Vinci Code 2, The Dilemma, which is kind of a a shoot back to his beginning work, right? Um, Which that that was the one with like Winona Ryder and Vince Vaughn about like a couple with Kevin James. Then it was oh, Rush. Oh, okay, okay. I thought that was the one where there was like sperm in an egg baster and everybody was confused whose baby it was. Uh, was I don't Ryan think Reynolds it was movie. the, uh, I think that, yes, yes. That's, then he did Rush, which is another docudrama. Then he did, uh, then he did In the Heart of the Sea, another docudrama. And like all these are, these doc, and then the third Da Vinci Code. And then he comes in and fills in for solo and, and makes a movie that I, you know, you know, I'll let you know what be. I'm hearing you say when you put that arc together the way that you are? It's that Apollo 13 is perhaps a turning point for Ron Howard, where he realizes the Oscar nominations to be made in doing very mm-hmm. faithful docudramas, because this one gets like, what, nine Oscar nominations? Yeah. I think it just wins for sound and editing or something. Mm-hmm. But then he goes down that route because there is a shift from the splashes of the world to the beautiful minds of the world to the docudramas that I actually do not care about. And it is almost impossible for me to care about, but the movies that are just made to get Oscar nominations. Well, I mean, but no, but you see, I also believe that there's a, there's a part of him. I don't think that he's doing this to, uh, I think that like, it's like my dad, like my dad loves history. He loves civil war stuff. Right. And I think Tom Hanks has really leaned into his world war two stuff. I mean, the museum that he really helped uh, launch in new Orleans is one of the best, you know, world war two museums. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. I just think that sometimes oh, your personal, there. yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's great. Like I think that sometimes your personal thing takes over. I, I think maybe what we're seeing is Ron Howard segueing out of comedy, like straight up comedies, you know, fun, big, bold comedies. And I think there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a hit and miss in that ratio there too. Like there's not like, they're not as big hits. Like, cause you go like, all right, Night Shift is an adult movie, but it's not like it's big enough, but it's not like huge. Splash, giant, cocoon, giant, gung-ho, smaller, willow, smaller, parenthood, big, backdraft, huge, right? Like, and it's like far and away, not big. Like he's like, he's almost like he's like every other movie. He's like trying to find like, where does he go? And now I think he finds the secret of the successes. Let me take, let me guarantee a great story because maybe like what he was saying like maybe the story is not connecting or maybe I don't know it you know or I'm just more interested in in telling these real things but I remember seeing that documentary about those Formula One racers and that was so much more interesting than the version that he did because it was like well this is real footage I'm just I don't know maybe documentaries have gotten so much better I, I like I'm I'm real mixed on him because I think he's I'm not I mean, saying I do think competent. documentaries got better around the time he shifted to making docudramas yeah and I'm not and I guess like this is what I want to say about Ron Howard is the mastery is all there. It's like the instinct for casting is there. The way that things are shot are there. The like 
like there's nothing about him that feels hacky, that feels um, like he's phoning it in, right? Like, I, I don't think he's schmaltzing it up. I think he's actually like, what's the best version I can do of telling these stories? I just don't know if that's my cup of tea, but it may well, be your parents' cup of tea, like that idea. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I do feel as though he has never leaned into visual awe the way that I would say Zemeckis did, right? Because if there is a big difference between these two guys who both make movies with Gary Sinise and Tom Hanks at around the same time, that Zemeckis is making Forrest Gump, then the next year we get Apollo 13, that Zemeckis is interested in stopping and letting the camera just show you something amazing. And Ron Howard kind of isn't. Ron Howard, I think, is more story-driven. I don't. When I think about Apollo 13, maybe the most beautiful shot in the film is when they uh, spray pee outside. I love that shot. Yeah, but other than that, like I don't know what the what the the showstopper moments are in Apollo okay. 13, where you say I am watching art instead of I am watching a good story that is unfolding. Well, let's talk about it like this, and let's bring it into something that I feel like can either anger a lot of our audience or not. Which is, I will say this. What I think I'm missing is the Hamiltonness of this story. And what I mean, well, no, but I guess like what I'm saying is what I think was so engaging about Hamilton on a level that that kind of crossed everything was we're going to do this. We're going to tell you this story. We're going to tell you this fucking boring ass, but not boring. Like I love history books. I read them. I read primarily nonfiction. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you this in a way and make it really interesting. So you're gonna walk out. You're gonna be singing songs. You're gonna be remembering songs. They're telling you about parts in a U.S. history, but we're doing it in a way that is attention grabbing. It, like it, it's. I mean, not to say that that's the only way to do things, but there's something really fun about that. Like there's something really like I can take something and serve it to you in a completely different way. Um, I don't know if there's that many other options of, of that. I'm thinking in my head. I'm like, well, what else is there? Uh, but I do America, think... the motion picture. Have you seen that yet? No. It's the cartoon retelling of oh, American yes. history, but completely absurd. Completely absurd. Like Channing Tatum plays George Washington. And it's like he and Thomas Jefferson are best friends in prom dates. And then Thomas Jefferson gets his throat ripped out by Benedict Arnold because Benedict Arnold is a werewolf. That's amazing. I think that's a Lord Miller produced thing. It right? is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like, I it's guess aggressively stupid. It, but it did grow on me. Um, I guess, like, I, you know, I don't know. I just there is something about my appetite, and I and I wonder if it's you know brought on by you can't beat the actual people. It's like it's the same anger that I get when people are, like, oh, we're gonna make the you know the um, the Elizabeth. Uh, Holmes is it Holmes the one who is the Theranos like yeah. we're going to make that the fictionalization of that why you got a great five part documentary oh we're going to do the fictionalization of Tiger King why you got a great fucking documentary like why are and we honestly, doing honestly they cast people who could never be those people like Elizabeth no. Theranos has wild eyes that you could never make an actress do it just doesn't happen that way like cast just can't keep the right one did they ever make the King of Kong dramatization? Because I remember that, like, they were toiling with that for a while. Yeah. And I was like, why are we doing that? Like, just make, like, you can't be, I guess what I feel like is well, like, well, why are we redoing where it? They can't ever make things as weird as the real things because they still want to cast attractive people. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, but I also feel like if you got the people, then let them tell the story. Like, let them tell the story. We don't need, you know, 
I, you know, I don't know. And I know that we don't have the people in Apollo 13. And I, and I think that sometimes well, you need to mass market it. did, though. I mean, we, ish. well, ish. We had Jim Lowell, or Lovell. I keep calling him Lowell. I'm sorry, Jim Lovell. Yeah. Although the New York Times went to go watch the movie with him when it came out. And they said he stayed very calm. You know, he was just sort of like, it's happening. He was eating his popcorn and just kind of chilling out. And then at one time when they're trying to do the, the mission where they have to... um move the spacecraft around and it takes like 38 seconds in the movie. He's like, we did that in 14. He just stayed very, very chill about it. I think he, he, I don't know if he would be that good at telling his own story. Really? I wonder, I mean, being such a calm guy, he did have issues with the way that his story was told before, because yes, this movie gets a lot of grief for misquoting the Houston. We have, we've got a problem line. You know, the original Mm -hmm. one actually, it was not quite as punchy. However, I will say it is not Ron Howard's fault that this line got misquoted. The actual fault is from a TV movie that came out uh, four years after the actual Apollo 13 mission. And that TV movie that was a retelling of the story was called Houston, We've Got a Problem. Uh, The movie actually opens with um, Eli Wallach, you know, the guy from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, doing what I think is a pretty absurd imitation of Rod Sterling. Disaster is two minutes away and counting. Much of what you are about to see is true. The events of the last four days of the Apollo 13 mission are real. The voices of the astronauts from space are real. Most of NASA personnel are portrayed as themselves. However, as in all recreated history, some of the characters are fictionalized and are meant to represent the spirit of the Apollo 13 flight controllers and all the other men and women of NASA to whom this film is dedicated. There are few heroes in the world. This is the story of four heroes. Four flight controllers who gave and gave all they had and then gave more. I should say that Jim Lovell totally hated this movie, like completely hated it and like wrote angry letters to the editor. He said it was fictitious and in poor taste and that it is a sad commentary of the times when we have to fictionalize the truth to make it palatable to the public. But you sound like you want a little more fictionalization. You want a little gremlin on the way? I I think think I'm like... um... I don't know what I'm feeling. I just didn't feel, I didn't, just didn't lean in. I didn't lean in on it. I don't know why. I, I feel like maybe because this movie is so specific to the mission and what they did on the mission versus like a story like that uh, that maybe can tell a, a bigger picture or a more singular journey. I, I don't know. Maybe the team aspect of it. I love team movies. I love ensembles. I, you know, uh, there's something about it where I I can't say oh I didn't like this or I didn't like that I'm like I get it all it just didn't I mean the right stuff is cinema you know you mm-hmm. watch the right stuff and it is visually arresting in a way that Apollo 13 isn't a little mm-hmm. daffy like you have Chuck Yeager riding a horse and just sort of like riding around and looking at the flaming engine it it feels kind of like a silent movie in parts of it. Like the way that they capture just the visual pressed back against your seat, cheeks flapping in the air, like you are breaking the sound barrier at the beginning. You know, you, 
it it seems artistic. You know, the, the characters who announce that people have died on these missions, they kind of creep in looking like the specter of death. Like Right. It casts more of a spell than Apollo 13 does. It, and I hate saying that out loud because it makes me feel like I want these guys to die or, or something like that. I mean, the things in the movie that I thought were taking it too far, some of them are true. Like when his wife drops her wedding ring down the shower drain, that actually did happen. Except it just like got caught in the trap and she immediately picked it up. It wasn't that mm-hmm. big of a deal. Um, and when the movie, I think, veered into stuff that felt more expressionistic, maybe because the film was told in such a straightforward manner, I found myself rolling my eyes. I mean, what did you think at the at the moment where you cut back to the rocket and it's playing Blue Moon, already an on-the-nose sound choice, but it's playing it slow and creepy like here? Yeah, yeah. Did you think that was too much? You know what? Honestly, I think I liked that moment because I felt like it was just giving me a little bit more color. Blue color? Moon A little color. color. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, like, this just gave me something a little bit more to hold on to. I didn't look at it as like that. I, you know, um, when I'm listening to it there, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't bo- it didn't bother me. I guess all I should say is it didn't bother me. Well, then maybe I'll tell you this fun fact, which is, remember in Contact when they uh, slipped Jodie Foster a poison pill and they're like, if anything goes wrong... Mm-hmm eat this pill. Somebody asked Jim Lovell if they did the same thing for this. Like, did you have that kind of poison pill? Like, do they give you that? Is that actually a true thing that happens? And he was just like, absolutely forget about it. Like there's never a situation where you would consider making an early exit. And if there was, they knew that they had lots of ways of actually just killing themselves easier. That the thing that they would do is they would just crank the vent in the cabin and then immediately all of the cash and pressure would make their uh, blood boil and they'd be dead in like a second. No need for pills. Oh, wow. Dark. Yeah, it dark, but also he's like, we didn't think about it. Like, that's right. kind of the reoccurring mantra that seems to come up. I mean, Ron Howard, when he went to meet NASA, he was just struck by the fact that these guys were incredibly calm. Because I realized, that, you know, these were not uh, autocrats or something, you know, automatrons. Mm-hmm. They, they, these were... Um, very interesting individuals, very bright, dedicated, but, and it can even be a little cynical, but they, but, man, were they emotionally wrapped up in that rescue. And I began to see the, the movie in, I guess, much more human terms when I began to see uh, just what everybody had put themselves through, waiting and hoping. You so what, what it does is? it mean then? So, okay. So then what does it mean, Paul, if our real life heroes are calm? What does it mean if actual real life heroism is just being incredibly calm and not being quippy and not outrunning a fireball? Like, are we talking about heroism in the wrong way? No. Here's what I think I've just kind of come to a realization of. I think what it's hard to critique fact Right. It's like I like I don't like I'm not like, oh, they weren't heroic enough. I'm, I'm amazed at what they did. doesn't mean that it's a movie. Right. It doesn't mean that it like it, it doesn't mean like just because they did a heroic act and they, I don't want them to be like, 
uh, you know, coming back in like, Houston, we solved the problem. Like high fives, popping up in a Bud Light in the, you know, in the spaceship. I don't need that. I'm not looking for that. But I guess what I'm saying is what I think all these movies share and what I think I have a problem with is it's Teflon. You can't really attack anything because it's all true. It all works. It's all fine. It's all like, that's the way they did it. 34 seconds versus 14 seconds. Who gives a shit? Like nothing makes a difference. And it's sort of like they are bulletproof. And then because they're bulletproof, we have to elevate them and go like, well, the acting in this was amazing. The story was amazing because it's true. Like, and that's why we come back into time and time again at these Academy Awards. Like, well, based on a true story. Was a true, those are real people. But then you look at somebody like Chloe Zhao when she makes Nomadland and she actually puts real people in it. I'm like, ooh, that's actually more interesting to me. That's more interesting than a Hollywood version of what this thing is. Like, um, you know, you feel like you, I, I feel like I saw a culture there instead of someone trying to recreate a culture, you know? Um, so there's another example of, of, of manipulating some things. And obviously, you know, uh, that's a different, you know, but I think that we are attracted to true stories because it's the same way that, um, I just think that dramas often, you can't say anything bad about a drama. You really can't. Like how many times have you walked out of a drama and been like, this is a horrible drama. No, you never do, but you can walk out of a comedy and be like, that was not funny. That would suck. That was terrible. It's like, but like a drama is tele, like a, a docudrama is bulletproof. It's Teflon. As long as everyone equips themselves moderately well, it's like, yes, let's give him a, let's give, you know, Ed Harris an Academy Award, you know, for this. And by the way, he's great in the movie. He's great. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're putting so much behind it. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know. I, eh. well, no, I, I mean, think he's all great okay. actors. Yeah. You can't critique a real life drama without some people arguing that it means you just don't care about what happened. Right. Like, right. Cause I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Like I find most real life dramas unbearable and I've had the experience of critiquing them. And then people being like, you hate the troops. You should get your head cut off and um, like raped by the Taliban, which happened, whatever. I mean, that, that happens because when people read a negative review of a true life docudrama, they can't tell the difference between saying, I don't care about what these people did, and I don't care about how this story was told. Weirdly, people can't tell the difference. And you're right, it is harder to review comedies. Part of the reason why it's harder to review comedies is it's hard to talk about a comedy that's good. Like when you're writing a review of a good comedy, you're really screwed because either you're going to ruin all the jokes for people by Mm -hmm. by proving examples that this movie is funny, or you're going to run out of words to say funny because we don't have that many words to say funny that aren't repetitive. This is my big ax to grind. Like we have funny and you can get away with maybe one hilarious, but then you start sounding like promotional material and every other word for funny is terrible. Mirthful, like giggle inducing. It's impossible to write a good review of a comedy. At least with dramas, you can get into the material of what's happening and not worry that much about spoilers, but comedy Everything is a spoiler. Almost everything is a spoiler, unless it's really. Well, I mean, plot yeah, driven. that's yeah, I, I, absolutely. You know, and I, and I think that like you know, no one has the same sense of humor, right? And that's okay. Uh, you may think that the funniest movie is a movie that I don't care for at all, and that's and and uh, it's like it's the same reason why like for every uh, you know. Bill Burr, there's a, you know, a Jeff Foxworthy. And I think like, you know, anyone who says like, oh, Jeff Foxworthy, and this is like an old reference, I know, but it's like, it's not funny. It's like, well, obviously 
you're wrong because he's selling out stadiums and he's a huge giant. Like, you know, like, like to me, I'm always like, you're wrong. Like, it, like as long as people are attending, they're funny. Like, no one's there because, like, oh, well, there was nothing else to do. You know, I always have, like, I always have such an issue with that idea. Like, no, if you find it funny, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, if you find it good, it's good. I just think that, like, but I think it's here, like, you protect yourself. Like, like what can you say? What can I say about this? Well, if I say, if I go, well, I didn't feel like um, Tom Hanks had enough uh, emotion in this. Like, well, he, you know, he's that Jim Lovell didn't have enough emotion in this. You know, I just wanted to see Gary Sinise, like, just do something more. Well, actually, Gary Sinise did everything exactly the same way he did. You know, so it's like you can almost, you, it's almost like uh, bulletproof. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I hear your point. Like, to criticize, as we both did, slightly, movies like Schindler's List and movies like Saving Private Ryan, you immediately sound like you're, I don't know, pro-Nazi and anti-American soldiers in World War II? Like, there that, can be, yeah, there can be good stories without them having to be good movies. And I think that when we, when we you know, when we have a good movie... I think that, like, you know, I, I think that you do need to take liberties. I think you want it to, you have to kind of work it. It's not enough to be like, this is a great story. It's like, well, what's the story behind that? I mean, I look at that, you know, even in, you know, what's this recapping versus what's, what is the thing I'm connecting to here? Well, and I, I love what then, you said. Yeah, yeah well, what we are in then is like a bind because I think because docudramas seem impossible to attack, it is why I think they are the Oscar category that is most likely to win, especially male weepy docudrama, because you can't really criticize them and they're taken very seriously. And they rise to the top of the pack almost out of inertia because people who take creative risks, you can attack a creative risk. You know, you can attack something like, sorry to bother you or right. the favorite because they seem they're riskier. You know, you can say like, well, you made that up and I don't like that you made that up. And yet we're in a bind where documentaries still don't make a ton of money or get that much attention as great as they are. Although now that we're talking about this, I want us to do, I, we've talked about it, a, like a, a documentary section because there are so many great documentaries and here Absolutely. you come out now as a doc ed. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I love it. And I, and I feel like uh, this has been a tough movie to talk about in a way because it's very rare to feel like I respect something without enjoying it. Yeah. That's a really screwed up feeling. Yeah. Maybe this means that the greatest movie of all time is Titanic. It's a true story, ah, but with so much passion and energy. Fine. Okay. Here's my excuse for thinking about Titanic in this film. Okay. So kind of like how you said that uh, Gary Busey reused a line from Point Break here. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of an echo in this scene. 35 seconds to entry interface. Gentlemen, it's been a privilege flying with you. Gentlemen, it has been a privilege playing with you tonight. So is the conspiracy theory that James Cameron saw Apollo 13 and was like, Oh, that's a good line. I should put that in Titanic. Or is it that Ron Howard knew that the Titanic musicians said that? I think they did. Maybe I'll fact check that. And was like, that's a great line. I'll put it in my film. Like, where did this privilege, where is the origin of this privilege history? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like, now I don't know. 
All right. Well, there we go. I mean, look, obviously we had issues with this movie. Is there people out there that had a different opinion? I mean, like, or no, are there people out there that agreed with us? I mean, where do people fall on this? I mean, obviously it's a critical darling. I mean, I will still say that I like this movie better than you, but here is a pan. One of the rare pans. There were not many pans of this movie from Edward Guthman of the San Francisco Chronicle. He wrote, Apollo 13 may be handsome, earnest, well acted and admirably executed, but it is hardly a heart pounder. The problem is the story they tell is not sufficiently cinematic. Somehow the movie never grabs you, never becomes the white knuckler you expect. Mm. The heart of the movie, after all, takes place in a tiny claustrophobic capsule, an inherently static situation that inhibits action. Howard's direction is so gee whiz and gung ho and James Horner's score is so calculated to pump our adrenaline and impose an emotional response on us, music as bully, that Apollo 13 recalls one of those jingoistic TV specials that celebrated the Statue of Liberty centennial. There's no sociological or political subtext here. No mention that Richard Nixon was president at the time, that Vietnam had divided the country, that an alternative culture had emerged that was questioning the wisdom of spending billions of dollars on moonshots. I just wish that Apollo 13 worked better as a movie and that Howard's threshold for corn, mush, and twinkly sentiment weren't so darn wide. I think you wrote that. You know what? I do agree with that. I don't think the capsule has anything to do with it because I think you can do something amazing in a confined space. I mean, look at Breaking Bad, that episode that they do in the whole lab. I think, uh, you know, look, if you're watching Black Monday, we did a whole episode in a warehouse. No big deal. Uh, but no, I, I think that like bottle episodes actually can create really amazing drama. Um, that being said, I, I don't think that that's the issue. Well, you know what? I'm going to let Jim uh, himself, Jim Lowell, have the last word on this because he gave one of the introductions to Tom Hanks when Tom Hanks had his AFI Great Achievement Award. And I will say that when uh, Tom comes out to speak, he stands up and he alone is giving Jim uh, a standing ovation. So just picture that. It's very sweet. To be here on Earth again, to have enjoyed a career in the nation's great space program, and then and then to be played on the big screen by Tom Hanks. <laughs> Zowie. When Tom came to Houston to scout the movie, I invited him to my house just west of Austin. Uh, We met at the airport, and I thought it might be fun to take him back to the house in my plane. The flight to my home takes 15 minutes. I took an hour and a half. (laughs) I did things that test pilots do. Approaches the stalls. Unusual attitudes. But Tom really hung in there. And it was from that moment that I saw Tom would not have it any other way. A total sense of commitment. I know that you and I agree what we do does not truly lend itself to the word hero. Well, we do our jobs. And though both of us have been known to reach for the heavens, you are truly one of America's great stars. Congratulations. Also, I went down this rabbit hole detour, so I'm just going to tell you all about it. Uh, It turns out that Tom Hanks has an asteroid named after him. And that in 2011, this asteroid, it's called the 12818 Tom Hanks, came the closest to Earth that it has ever come. And it happened to come close in orbit to us at the exact same month as another asteroid called the 8353 Meg Ryan. Whoa, look at that. Isn't that sweet? So then I I went down like a whole research thing of being like, well, who else has asteroids named after them? There is the 7032 Hitchcock. There is the 26858 Mr. Rogers. 
Uh, there's another partnership. There's the 9341 Grace Kelly and 9342 Carrie Grant. If we want to jump to a, a soundtrack composer we've talked a lot about, there is the 6354 Vangelis. Other musical asteroids are the 2628 Santana and the 110393 Romstein. Uh, there's, of course, a 1021 Kubrick. For some fucking reason, there is a 4531 Adam Carolla and a 4536 Drew Pierpinski. Okay. But I will close out with my favorite space movie of this whole fr- of this whole series. There is, in fact, a 17744 Jodie Foster. Oh, I love that. What a great way to end this series, Amy. Full circle back to the beginning. Well, I mean, technically, Galaxy Quest at the beginning. I'm sure there's a Thermion or some Tim Allen one up there, too. But what uh, a great way to bring there's it all back. There's not a Tim Allen asteroid. Yeah, well, you never know. It's still time. Um, Are you going to become an astronaut just to name the Tim Allen astronaut? I think, astronaut? I, might ha- I, think I might have to. Uh, maybe Barack Obama wanted to get land on an asteroid to put like a Tim Allen DVD in there, the Santa Claus, you know, that was wow. his goal. Um, you know, Amy, you know what? It is, I, I would yeah. go for the uh, renaming the Tim Allen asteroid, an actor who would have been better for that movie. Oh, wow. 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 Well, you may get your hope uh, because it looks like the reboot is coming in hot. Uh, Simon Pegg now is writing it with um, one of the amazing writers of Secession and the therapist next door. Uh, so we'll see. Maybe you'll get your, maybe you'll get your moment. Maybe you'll get your moment here. Dare to dream. You know, now, Amy, this series is over, uh, this, this, you know, space series. But now we turn again to you all because we are opening up uh, a brand new series. And this is going to be, uh, I'm excited about this because it is summertime. This was a summer blockbuster and segues so good into what our next series is, which is... Summer, Summer blockbusters. blockbusters. That's it. We are want to focus on blockbusters. In the past, we have talked about Jaws. We've talked about Raiders. We've talked about Star Wars. We want to know what are the summer blockbusters that you want us to talk about. And we're going to start this off next week with a state of the union about the blockbuster, the summer blockbuster. This is a summer where we have a franchise that's 20 years old in Fast and Furious. We have one that's 13 years old in the Marvel Universe. And we have one that... I mean, is potentially starting a franchise with Space Jam 2, a movie that uh, I don't think many people thought a sequel was on the horizon, but it is it is here and it is uh, it is coming out. Yeah, LeBron is not going to the Olympics because he is playing for the Toon Squad. But back in 1996, 96, that came out Space Jam. And this is the sequel now. And I think that's really interesting to talk about because, yes, we covered the very first summer blockbuster ever made, Jaws, last summer. So I want to figure out over the course of our summer blockbuster series, how did we get from a revolutionary rubber shark to the ninth time Vin Diesel drives a car very fast? How did we evolve? How dare you? And are we headed in the right direction? Well, uh, we want you to weigh in, as always. Summer's already begun, so let's get your picks in there. You can go on our Discord at discord.gg slash paulshear or discord.gg slash hdtgm. Uh, there's unspooled sections on there, and uh, we have a very big conversation going on. Uh, we'll start that up. And next week, we'll just kind of do a little bit of an overview, kind of talk about some stuff, and, uh, and then we'll jump right in with our first in the series, Decided by You. I'm going to say we send off with just a little bit of an update on Space Force. Yes. Uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary, was asked, what's up with Space Force now that Biden is in control? Let's let's hear her answer. And let's just play a little bit of the Space Force anthem. That is hard to say. I think that is a reason alone for calling it something else. 
Dude. They ask whether the president has made a decision on keeping or keeping the scope of Space Force. Wow, Space Force. It's the plane of today. Um, it is an interesting question. Um, I am happy to check with our Space Force point of contact. I'm not sure who that is. I will find out and see if we have any update on that. Uh, go ahead. The United States Space Force.